The passage I was trying to remember was Ephesians 3. So you can go look that up. I butchered it. I looked it up uh, as we were praying, and it's like I wasn't even close. So uh, that's what happens when ADHD tries to ad-lib some things. Well, uh, we're going to be in Genesis 42, if you want to follow along in your Bible, Genesis 42. Let me tell you a story about Brandon. Uh, not any Brandon that goes to church here, as, as far as I know, uh, but Brandon was a friend of mine in third grade. Now, uh, to set this up just a little bit, uh, I moved a lot as a kid. Um, in fact, up until the house that I live in today, I don't think I lived in any one house more than 18 months. And so I'd bounce from school to school a lot. And uh, so in third grade, I just kind of showed up in the school in the middle of the year. I'm back in Nederland. I went to Langholm. Anybody know where Langholm is? Yeah? Oh, we have some cheers. Okay, good, good. Uh, yeah, and if, if, anyway, it's like the oldest school in Mid-County or something like that. And so I'm in third grade, and um, as you would probably assume by looking at me, I sat at the cool table in the cafeteria. Now, I don't know, I don't know who decides which table is the cool table in the cafeteria, but it is a universal rule that every cafeteria has the cool table, and I was at the cool table. Uh, it was a circle table. It had about eight or nine chairs in it, and it was always me and the same group of friends that would get there. And when we would run down the halls. Lunchtime, we would run down the hall. We would get through the line as quick as possible. Uh, we'd always have someone like, hey, go save the seats. And so they, they'd save the seats. And we had this whole system worked out. And, and I got to sit at the cool table for all of my third grade year at this new school. Um, I had a friend named Brandon. He would sit next to me at the cool table. And then one day, uh, I'm sitting there. I'm having lunch. And Brandon, he didn't make it in time. I don't know who the new guy at the table was, but Brandon lost his seat because the cool table was full and I'm sitting and I'm having lunch and I look to my left and over at the dork table was Brandon by himself eating lunch. And I thought to myself, man, that stinks. Poor Brandon. You know, like I, I feel bad for the guy. I'm here at the cool table. I'm enjoying myself. Brandon, on the other hand, is, you know, he's by himself, lonely, eating lunch. And I think to myself, you know, you know what a good friend would do? You know, we would go sit with Brandon. So I just, you know, I, I, I relinquished my seat at the cool table and I grabbed my tray and I go and I sit next to Brandon. I didn't make a big deal about it. I didn't say, hey, how are things at the dork table? I just sat down and, and I, I, we had a conversation. And in the middle of this conversation, I mean mid-sentence. Now, Brandon, just so that you know, uh, one of the things that we would talk about was Power Rangers and we would talk about how stupid Power Rangers was. But see, what Brandon didn't know is that before he told me how stupid Power Rangers were, I didn't know anything about Power Rangers. And so in him telling me about it, I went and found Power Rangers. In third grade, Power Rangers were legit, okay? I'm just letting you know, they were great. And in the middle of this conversation that may or may not have been about Power Rangers, at the dork table with Brandon, Brandon looks up, and you know what he sees? A, a seat has come available at the cool table. The seat that I left at the cool table, and Brandon, without saying a word, not excuse me, nothing, he grabs his tray and rushes towards the cool table, and now I am left alone at the dork table, by myself, thinking to myself, I'm never putting myself out there again. I'm never helping Brandon, and I was so angry. And so I tell you the story to tell you that just like Joseph, I know a thing or two about being betrayed. Uh, I know a thing or two. <laughs> I know a thing or two about needing to forgive someone. You know what's funny is, as dumb as that story is, um, I, I can't tell you, just, just this past week, I, I was wrong about where I was traveling with my family by several hundred miles. I was driving in the wrong direction. I can't remember basic things like that. I can tell you what color shirt Brandon was wearing that day. I can tell you what the smell of the asbestos was in the cafeteria that day. I know everything about that day. Because there's something about when you're wronged. There's something about when someone actually does something. And it's legitimate. It's not, I, didn't, I didn't make it up. Brandon wronged me. Um, it sticks with you. 
There's something about those moments that like, your brain is like, I am locking this as a core memory for the rest of your life. And this will be the fuel by which you will you know, be angry. This will be the fuel by which you'll accomplish things. Um, here's, here's what I know. Uh, that's a dumb story, but there have been multiple times in my life that I'm not going to share on the stage that I've been wronged and it hurt. And unforgiveness has this sense of kind of putting power in my heart. This anger is like, I am, I am right, I'm just in my anger. But it doesn't change the negative consequences of it. And it doesn't change the, the way that it locks in our heart. And so I know that this is like a universal, everybody has a Brandon moment. Everybody in this room has been wronged by somebody. And it's a legitimate wrong. And yet, like so much of this Bible talks about forgiveness. And like, how do you apply one of the most basic principles of the Bible to some real hurt that really happened. Well, I've got great news for you if that's your question. Uh, Today in Joseph, uh, from pit to palace, uh, our boy is in the palace and his brothers who legitimately wronged him will walk into the room and we're going to watch as Joseph wrestles with all of these old emotions that are coming up out of nowhere um, and eventually lands in a place of forgiveness. So we will begin with that in chapter 42. Just to set this up, just so that we remember where we have been, Joseph is a major character in the book of Genesis. Um, in fact, he has the equal number of chapters as another major character, Abraham, as the two most revealed characters in the book of Genesis. Um, Joseph is a part of the promised family of God. Abraham was the first of the, the family chosen by God. And then Abraham had kids who had kids who are now the third generation. Joseph is in that third generation. Joseph uh, is one of 12 brothers that are supposed to be the family by which God is going to save all of the world. And in fact, if we continue reading all the way into the New Testament, he accomplished his purposes through this family. And so you would think, well, God chose this family. They must be pretty swell people. They're not. They're dysfunctional. From the day one, they have problems. And yet God's promise um, continues despite their malfunctions, despite their failures. Um, and so there's moments of correction, there's moments of, of overcoming, there's moments of consequence that the family faces, yet God's promise continues. And so we're kind of tracking with Joseph and seeing like our God is a God who can see his purposes through to completion. He, one day when he was 17 years old, he has a dream, a dream that his brothers will bow down to him uh, as leader of the family. He's the next to youngest in the family. That is a ridiculous ridiculous dream. And yet in his naivety or a little bit of pride, maybe uh, he tells his brothers, he tells his family and they hate him. It says multiple times how much his brothers hated him. They couldn't speak peacefully to him. And then they plotted to murder him. And one of the brothers like, Hey, listen, let's make a little profit. So they sold him to slavery instead. And for the last 20 ish years, Joseph's life has been a roller coaster of circumstances up and down. And yet what we see is that he's a man who stays faithful to God, whether he's on the peak or in the valley. That his circumstances don't determine who God is, um, his God determines who he is, and then the circumstances are just things he goes through. When we left off last week, uh, Joseph was pulled out of the prison by Pharaoh, just quickly, like pfft, pulled out of the prison by Pharaoh, put to rule over all of Egypt because he has this great idea. Um, Pharaoh comes to Joseph and says, hey, I had a dream. Joseph tells him, the dream is this. There's going to be seven years of awesome. Like, we're going to have plentiful, more than you can imagine, it, grain, food, everything. We're set. But it's going to be followed by seven years of awful. And this seven years of awful will be a famine that covers not just Egypt, but the entire land. And because of Joseph's, Joseph's 
Joseph's revelation and because of Joseph's wisdom, Pharaoh's like, come on, man, I'm putting you in charge. Makes him like governor of Egypt. And we left off last week with the seven years of awesome have just ended. Uh, Joseph has been married. He has two kids and he's just making a life in Egypt. He's doing the best he can in circumstances that are not ideal. That's where we pick up today in chapter 42. The famine is set in and things are getting really uh, very awful. Maybe you've been in a season of uh, and you're like, hey, what am I supposed to do in seasons of uh? Well, let's find out. Let's see how, how it goes. Chapter 42, verse 1. It says, um, when Jacob, now that's Joseph's dad, just to remind you, and sometimes Jacob, it will say, when Israel, he has uh, two names. God gave him the name Israel. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? I, I love this so much. Uh, because I, I don't know, I don't know how, how your parents talk to you. I, I don't know how things were when, when you were growing up. But you're just looking at your kids like, why are you just standing there, man? Like, you're just staring at each other. Uh, the famine is so bad that Jacob is looking around. He's like, we have no food here, but I heard there's food down in Egypt. Why are you guys staring at each other? Uh, he says in verse 2, And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is a grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So uh, he's kind of ramping this up like, hey, we're a little bit hungry, but go and buy this grain that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the with his brothers, with the other brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus, the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, came to buy among the others who came for the famine uh, was in the land. Uh, for the famine was in the land of of Canaan. Go to Egypt, get some food, so that we may not die. Here's the problem that Jacob is facing right now. Um, in his season of uh, the famine is hitting him. It's a universal famine. Whether you are a follower of God or not, in this day, you are dealing with the fact the entire land is in famine. Everybody is suffering to a degree. Um, and the, the fact that you are suffering does not necessarily reflect whether or not you're a follower of God and know Yahweh or just a pagan and don't know anything about him. It's a universal blanket. And yet when Jacob uh, says, hey, go, go buy some grain that we may live and not die, he's betraying something that's in his heart. What's in his heart is that we're at risk of losing right now. If we die, Jacob, if Jacob's family dies, then God's promise has been nulled out. Jacob and his family are the only family by which God has chosen to redeem the world. And God has come through on his promise generation after generation, all the way through Jacob's life. And yet in this moment, he is forgetting that God has made that promise. His fear is that he will die. One, one of the, the truths of humanity is that when we are in seasons of suffering, the things that we are afraid of and the things that we are putting our hope in reveal more about our faith and the truth of our heart than really what we say out of our mouth, honestly. See, what Jacob should have thought is like, you know, God was faithful to my grandpa Abraham. God was faithful to my dad Isaac. God has been faithful to me my entire life. God has already broken Jacob's hip at this point. That's a story for another day. Like he, he knows God well, but in this moment of just things aren't going great, he's betraying that he doesn't really believe that God's going to come through on his promises. We need to be aware and mindful 
um, of, of this truth, that sometimes the things that come out of our mouth in times of pressure tell us what's really going on in our hearts. So he tells the 10 brothers, he says, hey, go get some food, but I'm holding Benjamin back. If you were here in the first week of this, I drew a family tree, um, and, and Jacob had children with four women. And two of the children, Joseph and Benjamin, are from Rachel. Rachel was his favorite wife who died in childbirth of Benjamin. He's already lost Joseph. As far as Jacob knows, Joseph is dead. Like He, he just thinks that Joseph has died years and years ago, 20 years ago to be exact. Um, and now he's saying, hey, you brothers, you go, but I'm keeping Benjamin back because I think something, may be, uh, may, may, something bad may, may happen to him. Even, even in this moment, in this, in this unresolved grief of Jacob, um, we're seeing that he still is picking favorites. Uh, what's going to happen to the other ten brothers? Like, I don't care about y'all. Y'all go. Uh, but Benjamin, something bad may happen to him, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold him, him back. And so, anyway, we're starting to see some of these, these characteristics unfold. I want to fast forward a little bit. Uh, he sends them down to Egypt. The brothers march into Egypt just like every other person in the world, whether they're pagan or God-fearers or not. They're going to Egypt trying to buy food. They're in line. And then they get to the man who's going to sell them the food. Now, the man that is going to sell them the food, we know as Joseph. But Joseph has been living for 20 years as an Egyptian governor. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, not for 20 years as an Egyptian governor, but it's been 20 years since they've seen him. They don't recognize him. And so Joseph pretends not to know who they are. He sees his brothers, and he knows exactly who they all are. But now Joseph has shaved his beard. He's going by a different name. And he's speaking to them through an interpreter. Um, and he really he treats them pretty poorly, uh, in fact. He... He, he, he yells at them. He, he, uh, scripture says that he speaks roughly to them. Uh, he calls them spies. You're just here to like scope out the land. You're trying to, you're trying to conquer Egypt. And brother's like, I don't know what's going on. Why are you treating us so badly? Um, and so anyway, Joseph locks them up in prison. Anybody, anybody have like somebody in your, in your life that wronged you? I don't know, say like 20 years ago. And it would just be awesome for them to walk in and you have the power to just throw them in prison in that moment. He throws all 10 of his brothers in prison. The last time Joseph saw them, 20 years ago, he was begging for his life. Please don't kill me. Please don't do this. Stop what you're doing. They ignored him and threw him in the pit, then sold him into slavery. Later, they ripped the clothes off of him. And now 20 years later, they come marching to him, begging him for help. He's like, nah, man, throws them in prison. But he thinks about it after a while. He's like, eh, I got these brothers in prison. On uh, verse 18, 42 verse 18, it says, on the third day, how long did they stay in prison? Three days. You're just sitting there twiddling your thumbs like, oh my gosh, this crazy Egyptian is going to kill me. What have we done? On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. That's got to be a weird sentence coming out of what you think is an Egyptian pagan. I fear your God. Um, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest of, uh, let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. Like, I'm just, there's 10 of you. I'm going to keep only one of you. You guys choose which one, okay? Um, and, and the rest of you can go, and, and I'm going to send you some, some grain. And then he says, bring your youngest brother to me, which is Benjamin, uh, so your words will be verified and you will not die. And they did so. So they're looking around. They're trying to figure out who, who's, who's, going, who's going to stay behind. They're, they're trying to figure this out. Joseph is putting a lot of pressure on them. It's like, you want to prove that you're not spies. He knows they're not spies. But I want you to go get your, your youngest brother, my little brother, my favorite brother, uh, the one who wasn't there when you guys tried to kill me, that one. I want you to go get him and bring him back to me. That's how you're going to prove that you're not spies. And the brothers, oh, they're all twitchy. Now remember, uh, Joseph is speaking to them through an interpreter. So he, they think that he can't understand them. Here's what happens next. 
Um, verse 21, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress came upon us. And Reuben answered them. Reuben is the oldest of the brothers. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. This is so wild to me. Um, in this moment, Joseph, that they don't, they don't know it's Joseph, is threatening them, throwing them in prison, you know, all these things. And, and in this, what they think is a private conversation, immediately something that they did 20 years ago is the first thing that pops to mind as the reason for this happening. Um, here's, here's a truth of scripture. Um, unresolved sin will come back up. It is 20 years later, and they are just like, God's judging us right now. Reuben is the oldest. Uh, he's the one who said, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in the spit. His plan was to come back later and rescue him. But he still was kind of a part of it. And Joseph hears for the first time out of their mouth, like, Reuben, you, you weren't a part of this? And now, now, in Joseph's mind, the narrative has to be changing a little bit. So they, verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. So what does Joseph do? Verse 24, then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And then he took Simeon, which is the, the, the next brother under Reuben. So instead of locking Reuben up, he takes Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. He just ties up the hands after, after weeping. Something is changing in Joseph's heart. What moved Joseph from anger, retribution, revenge to weeping? It was when he stopped talking and he listened. He listened to his brothers. His brothers, after 20 years of having unresolved guilt, it's just bubbling on the surface, waiting for one thing to happen. Maybe they talk about it all the time. Maybe, maybe this is the first time they've talked about it. Maybe it's one of those secret sins. It's like, hey, listen, we just pretend this didn't happen. But in this moment, whichever one it was, in this moment, it came bubbling to the surface. And Joseph didn't interrupt. He didn't say, what were you thinking, Reuben? He, he still pretends to be ignorant, but he stops and he listens. And as a result of him listening, he hears that Reuben had a different heart than the rest of them, and he hears that there was dissension among them. You know, uh, James 1.19 says, Be slow to speak. You know, what does it say? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And as a result of Joseph doing that, his heart moved from full revenge mode to one notch back, and it caused him to weep. This will be the first of seven times that Joseph weeps for the situation that he's in. He weeps for his brothers. He weeps for what happened to him. He weeps for his dad later. Joseph is going to weep. And out of this entire story of Joseph, he's the only character that we have no sin that we can point to. We can't see where Joseph acted in a way that was inappropriate. That caused The worst thing he did was like as a punk 17-year-old was just talking about his dreams. That's the worst thing we see in Joseph, and that's not even a sin. It's just something kids do. They just say, this is what I dream. This is what I want. This is what I think is going to happen. Um, and he's the one who's weeping. It's okay to have holy tears of grief and weep the things that are happening around you. And maybe it just takes stopping long enough to hear the stories of people, to actually let it get beyond that first defensive mechanism. I need to move on before I... Uh, run out of time, which tends to happen all throughout Joseph. Um, we'll skip to chapter 43. So the brothers, 
they leave. Uh, so the nine of them are now heading back to, to home. Messed up story. They saw Simeon be arrested at that point. Uh, they stop along the way. It's a long, it's a long walk home, as you would imagine. So they stop along the way to, to eat and they, they need refreshment. So one of the brothers opens his bag and he sees in his bag all of the money that he thinks he just spent on, uh, this food. The, the food cost money and they gave them the money, but now the money's back in their bag because Joseph, what they don't know is Joseph kind of snuck the money back in their bag and they immediately go to, oh, what's happened to us? You know, it's funny is, is that this should have been a blessing. It was intended to be a blessing to them, but blessings feel like curses when we have unresolved sin in our lives. And one of the brothers actually says, what has God done to us? They start blaming God for this because what they think is the Egyptians are going to think we stole this food. And so now they've lost a brother. They have money that doesn't belong to them in their head and they get back to dad and they tell dad everything. Like he spoke so roughly to us. Dad mourns. He's like, you lost another brother. First you lose Joseph, and now you lose Simeon. And you're telling me now you are wanting Benjamin to go with you? There's no way. I'm not letting you take Benjamin. You're not going to take the promises of God away from me. He just tells his brothers no, and then they sit on it. They're like, okay, they leave Simeon in prison. But see, the thing about ignoring your problems is that some fixers are just temporary fixes. And so the grain that they got was a temporary fix. The famine continues. Chapter 43, verse 1, the famine continues. Now, the famine was severe in the land. They're they're just eating on the food that they bought. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go buy us a little food. He's like, hey, I've got this idea. They still have food in Egypt. You remember that thing we did last year to solve this? Go do that again. Uh, But Judah, one of the brothers, uh, said to him, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. He's like, I can't go without Benjamin. He's not going to see us. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Um, here's Here's a funny thing about family dysfunction. If you don't address it, it gets worse. This is the first time the brothers are just disobeying dad. Hey, go do this thing I said. And the brother's like, eh, you're going to have to do it this way, or we're just not going to go. And so Israel, that is Jacob, verse 6 said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Why'd you do this to me? Why'd you even tell him about Benjamin? You didn't have to tell him. And so they go through this whole, like, uh, story like he 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 didn't give us a chance he 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 told us um, that, that we had to answer for this and we had to tell him we're not a spy we didn't mean to but we did it's interesting to me that Jacob takes this as a personal offense that he takes this as a um, you're, you're treating me wrong by telling them this uh, he he's kind of a, a, a catastrophizer at this moment everything seems to be about about him and how it's affecting him uh, not so much about what God might be doing through this situation so what Jacob does is like okay all right I'm going to send Benjamin but I'm going to send a bunch of food I'm going to send everything we've got um, there's a big famine you're going to Egypt to buy food why is your gift the food. He sends uh, myrrh, gum. Uh, he sends pistachio nuts. I've been, I've been digging some pistachios lately. I don't know. Anybody in here love pistachios? He, like, that's a pretty good gift to give somebody, right? Go bring this guy in Egypt some pistachios and this. What Joseph does is that he sends a really feeble gift um, to try to appease this, this guy, this Egyptian guy. And so I was thinking to myself as I, as I read that, I was thinking, why, why did he send this gift? 
Uh, why, why, why do this? Well, it turns out this isn't the first time Joseph has done that. Or excuse me, Jacob. When, when Jacob was fighting his own brother, uh, and his brother was out to kill him, um, there was this moment where he's about to come face to face with his brother. And what he does, he's like, I've got this great idea to make my brother happy. I'm going to get all this food. I'm going to get a bunch of sheep. I'm going to get all the food I've got, all the treats, all the gifts. And I'm going to send them ahead and give this to my brother. And then I'm going to get all my wives, wives plural, uh, and children. And I'm going to put them in front of me. That way, if he has to kill some people, he's got to go through them first. Jacob's not a great guy. Um, and, and then when Esau gets to him, he's like, why did you send me all this stuff? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with all this stuff? He's like, I, I don't I don't know, just wanted to make you happy. And Esau told him, his brother told him, I don't need your stuff, man. Keep it. Uh, it's good to see you. Gives him a hug. Uh, and then they, they restore the relationship. Jacob is using his old playbook to solve these new problems. And it's more feeble than it was before because the famine is great in the land. Here's, here's a, a fact of humanity. And this is true of you. And it's true of me. Is that if we're not seeking the Lord, we're left to try to solve the problems with whatever skills we've learned to solve problems with. And the more we use that skill, the more feeble it becomes. My skill that I learned is uh, I make jokes at inappropriate times. If I'm uncomfortable, I'll say something funny. And it seems to make everybody happy until I'm like at a funeral or I'm having a really serious conversation with someone who's really, really mad at me. It doesn't work all the time because it's a feeble skill when I'm trying to utilize it all the time. When we try to solve our problems apart from God, our efforts are feeble and they're ineffective. And what we see then is that these problems that we face— they reveal to us what the hope of our heart really is. Jacob doesn't tell his brothers, listen, this is an impossible situation. We need to trust God. We need to pray to God. We need to seek him. Maybe we need to make a sacrifice to God. He tells them none of those things. His heart says, you know what I need to do? I need to send some pistachios to help this problem. It is a weak and pointless effort. If you find yourself facing a problem, especially a problem that's like been boiling up for a while, you maybe been ignoring it for the last year, as Jacob has, when it comes time to solve it, maybe, maybe turn to God first instead of turning to your, you know, trail mix or something. But, uh, you know, this is, this is just how Jacob tried to solve his problem. So he sends them, he sends them the money that was given to him and the money it's going to take to buy the stuff and the presents, the gum and the myrrh and the honey. Uh, we're going to skip down to verse uh, 15. Let's see what happens when the brothers, the nine of them get there with, well, 10, uh, Benjamin's with them now. So the men took this present. And they took double the money with them, and Benjamin, they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Now remember, Joseph has a different name. He's going by, I have to turn to it to find it, Zephanath Paneah. So they're going to a man that they know as Zephanath Paneah. It doesn't look Hebrew at all. Uh, and so when Joseph, verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. He's like, yeah, we're going to have a feast. I see my little brother. I love that guy. I haven't seen him in a while. And he's the only one of these guys who didn't try to kill me. So let's have a, let's have lunch. Uh, we're going to have a barbecue. Uh, and so he gets somebody to make a barbecue. Verse 17, the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now, as you might imagine, these brothers are absolutely confused at this moment. Like, what's, what's happening? Like, we didn't go to Joseph's house last time. Is he going to kill us? Like, is, is he like in the mob? I don't know. What's he going to do? And the men, verse 18, were afraid 
because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in her sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. Um, fun, fun fact, uh, human nature tends to assume the worst in people when we're just having a lot of unresolved things when we're not listening. This is a blessing. There is something cooking on the barbecue pit right outside this house, and they're like, hey, we're going to Joseph's house. Like, I think he's going to beat us up. I don't know. He's going to steal our donkeys. I don't know what he's going to do. He's, I, this is weird. They're freaking out. Verse 19, so what do they do when they're freaking out? We've got to get somebody on our side. So they go up to the steward of Joseph's house. This is like, this is like the boss of Joseph's house. This is what Joseph was in Potiphar's house. Now Joseph's got one of him in, in his house. And so the brothers are like, hey, steward, come here. Like, can we talk for a second? Uh, and they spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh, my Lord. <laughs> uh, they're just they're freaking out. Oh, my Lord, uh, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks. And there was each man's money in the mouth of the sack. I don't know how this money got here, man. I don't know where this money came from. Uh, our money in full weight. So listen, we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us too. Look at all this money we brought. We're not trying to steal anything. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. We are innocent. I don't know what Joseph's about to do, but please understand, it's like going to the Godfather. You know, you got to give him a gift. It's like, I didn't, I didn't take it. I don't know what the horse head is about, but I didn't take it. I didn't do it. They are freaking out. And the steward, I imagine, has the smile on his face. Like, you brothers are insane. You're, you're absolutely stressed out. You know the barbecue is on right now. You know, like, this is going to be great. Here's what the steward says in response, verse 23. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sex for you. I received your money. He's telling them, I'm the one who took the money from you. I know we got it. Your God did this. This is a blessing to you. Peace to you, this man says. How far from God have these brothers gotten that they forgot that they are the promised family of God and he's the one who is in control. He's the one who brings peace. They are so far from God that it takes some stranger at the Godfather's house to tell him, hey, bro, your God's got you. Your God is in control. Your God will bring you peace. This is the, Jacob should have been the one telling them this. Jacob's the one who knew God face to face, and he doesn't mention God. But the steward of Joseph's house, which is a great testimony to what it's like to be a godly man of character in faraway places when the circumstances don't match up, that even the people who are in his house are like, hey, your God's pretty great. Peace to you. Your God, he's, he doesn't say our God. Your God's good. Your God is going to bring you peace. That, that word peace to you, oh my gosh. I am out of time. Uh, that word peace to you is uh, shalom. It's a, it's a Hebrew greeting. Uh, they still use it today. If you go to Israel today, uh, shalom is hello, shalom is goodbye, shalom is how you doing. Shalom is kind of like the aloha of uh, Hebrew. Um, fun fact, if you visit Israel in your 20s, um, they don't really smile when you yell shalomi my homies, but I did it and it worked out uh, for me. I didn't get attacked or anything, uh, but it's far more precious than that. Shalom is this idea of peace. More specifically, it's this idea of God's peace. Uh, all throughout Scripture, shalom is the perfect equilibrium that was in Eden, and it's the perfect equilibrium that will one day be at the end of Revelation when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Shalom is the word for peace that comes up when we're looking at God working his promises out in a way. And this steward of this house looked to those brothers who should know about God's shalom and said, shalom. Your God is with you. He's blessed you. 
I'm going to fast forward a little bit. This idea of shalom pops up all throughout Genesis, beginning with the story of Abraham. Uh, every time God does something, it's shalom, uh, this peace. Uh, in chapter 37, uh, when we read about the brothers, they couldn't act at peace with Joseph. The, the Hebrew is they were not in shalom with Joseph. The brothers were not in shalom with Joseph. When Jacob sent Joseph to go check on his brothers that day that he was assaulted, he sends them to go check on him. He says, go and see that shalom is with your brothers and shalom is with the flock. Go and check and make sure God's things are good and peaceful. Shalom is with them. Uh, when, when Pharaoh asked Joseph for an interpretation of the dream, which was a coin flip, it could be good news or bad news, Joseph's response to Pharaoh was, God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace, an answer of shalom. He's like, I don't know what God's going to tell you, but he's going to give you his peace, which was a little bit of good news and a little bit of bad news. It turns out God's peace can contain both because it contains truth. And now the steward is saying shalom to you. I'm going to read quickly. It says, and when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and were giving them water... Uh, they had washed their feet, and when they had given their donkeys fodder, verse 25, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, and they heard uh, what they should eat bread there. They're like, okay, we're just going to have a feast. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him to uh, the present that they had with them, and they bowed down to him to the ground, and he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The Hebrew there is, is your dad in Shalom right now? Uh, the old man of whom you spoke, is he in Shalom? Is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father, is in Shalom. Our, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and they prostrated themselves. And it says, and he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and he wept there. Joseph weeps again. Is your dad in Shalom? Oh yeah, yeah, he's in Shalom. How are you doing? I'm doing good. There is a habit of us saying to people that we're in far more peace than we are. Jacob was not in Shalom. He is in great, great distress. Um, the ways of God are that we would be in real Shalom, not made up Shalom. It's not God's plan for you that you pretend everything is going great. It's God's plan for you that you work through the good and you work through the bad with his power, doing the things that he's guided you to do. And the result of doing so isn't made up shalom that you just tell people to be nice. It's real. It's real peace. You're walking down the hallway. How are you doing? It's like, I'm doing great. You don't mention the hospital visit. You don't mention the argument. You don't mention the pain in your heart because we've learned to put on a face. But God actually wants us to have real shalom. In, in your soul, are you at peace? Are you at real shalom with how things are turning out? Because what God wants is for you to have real shalom. Uh, Joseph, in all of the prison, and all of the pit, and all of the up, and all of the lies, and all of the down, you never see Joseph losing his just peace that God's got this worked out. He works through it, but he's at peace. Many of us, we go through life, and it's just like, it's hitting us hard, and I'm just not at peace. Uh, my advice to you would be to go to the God of peace. I, I don't have time to, to read chapter 45, um, 
But uh, the brothers, he tests the brothers. He sees that they're not, Joseph tests them. He sees that they're not the same as they were. They have a chance to turn on Benjamin. They don't turn on Benjamin. Uh, he, he checks to see if are they going to argue with Benjamin. There's a, a scene in, in, in there where Joseph is just sitting during the picnic, during the, the lunch, and he's just watching his brothers treat Benjamin with kindness. And he sees that 20 years have changed these brothers' hearts. They're not as cruel as they were to him. And in this moment of testing in chapter 45, it just, again, he just breaks down. He's like, I'm done. I'm done with the test. I'm done playing make-believe. He sends everybody out of the house and he just weeps with his brothers. He cries. He says, I'm the one. I'm the one that you wanted to kill. But listen, I forgive you. What you meant for my harm, Joseph will say, God meant for my good. He put me in this position so that I could protect you, and I can protect our family, and I can protect all of Egypt. I am here I didn't like how I got here, but I'm here so that all of this will be preserved. And God preserves life. Um, I need to I need to close. Uh, there's there's a man named Louis uh, Zamperini. Uh, real quick, uh, he was uh, an Italian immigrant who couldn't speak English. Was bullied in school. Becomes an Olympic athlete, an amazing athlete. Drafted into World War II. His his plane gets shot down. He's picked up by the Japanese and he's put in a POW camp. Um, and then he meets Billy Graham when he comes out of the, Billy, uh, the POW camp and he gives his life to Christ. And he's reflecting on all that pain, all that childhood pain. And uh, Louis Zamperini, he says this, he says, The hardest thing in life is to forgive. Hate is self-destructive. If you hate somebody, you're not hurting the person you hate, you're hurting yourself. It's a healing, actually. It's a real healing forgiveness. This is a man who knows what it's like to be treated poorly. Uh, the, the famous uh, Dutch watchmaker, Cory Ten Boom, she was also a part of World War II. Her family would protect Jewish refugees as they were fleeing Germany um, and got caught doing so. And so Cory and her family were thrown in a um, uh, detention camp uh, and spent some time in prison. And she writes in her memoir about that experience, she says this, it says, for all these people alike, the key to healing turned out to be the same. Each had a hurt he had to forgive. Really? You go into a German concentration camp and you're like, I'm going to forgive some people. It's where healing really is. Listen, uh, church, um, it is not if somebody has wronged you. It is for the people that have wronged you. The instruction is that forgiveness is the path to healing. You can hold on to your anger and it will be a fuel, but it will burn out and it will burn you out and it will likely burn others around you out. Um, but because of the cross, you can forgive. So here's what I want to meditate on this week as I close is um, there is no peace for you unless there's forgiveness for them. And you can fill in the blank on who the them is. There is no peace for you unless there is forgiveness for them. Did what they do? Was it wrong? Was it a sin? Maybe. Uh, but the price of Jesus on that cross paid enough not only to cover your sins, but to cover their sins as well. They could get forgiveness from Christ. And so who are we to hold on to what Christ has paid for? If we don't let go of the unforgiveness, it will rot out our peace. Do you want shalom in your life? Um, the path towards that peace is forgiveness. There's no shalom. There's no peace for you unless there's forgiveness for them. And the inverse is true. When we forgive, we find peace.
Joseph never told his brothers, hey, you know what you did was awesome. Love you for it. Thank you for trying to kill me. Thank you for throwing me in prison. He doesn't forget what they did, and he doesn't negate what they did. He just forgives them for the very real thing that they did. So maybe the hardest thing we do this week is forgive somebody. Amen? Um, and for some of us, we may need to forgive ourselves. That's a whole other sermon. Let me pray. Uh, we'll watch the queue together, I believe. We have a queue. Uh, Father, uh, this morning, uh, we give you the glory. Uh, help us in our weakness to forgive those. Help us to, to live in your forgiveness, to accept your forgiveness, um, and then in turn extend that to others. May, may the measure of your forgiveness in us be the measure by which we give to others. Help us uh, in our weakness to do that. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.